Today's episode is brought to you by Bulu Box. Bulu Box is a sample box focused on your health. You'll get healthy snacks, vitamin supplements, and even receive recipes and DVDs. Bulu Box is offering you, my listeners, $20 off a three-month subscription. So that's three months for just 10 bucks with promo code NATE. Just go to BuluBox.com, click on the microphone in the top left-hand corner, and enter promo code NATE. And here's to discovering a healthier you. Boyhood, the best-reviewed film of 2014, is available on Blu-ray Combo Pack January 6th. Acclaimed writer-director Richard Linkletter follows the same actors over 12 years to tell a groundbreaking coming-of-age story like none other in film history. Starring Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke in their Golden Globe-nominated roles, Boyhood is also nominated for Best Picture Drama and Best Director. On the Blu-ray on January 6th or buy it now on Digital HD from Paramount Pictures Rated R. Twenty fourteen. What do you think? We did it. You did it. You made it. I know there was, there was a time earlier in the year that you you, you weren't sure you were going to make it, like around Halloween. Then you made it. You made it through Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, Christmas, etc. Here you are, twenty fifteen. It's reading aloud. My name is Nate Cordry. I am your host, and we have another jam packed episode today of wonderful content. We have our first piece. It's a story. It was a story that a friend of mine told to me, and I thought, oh man, friend, you need to write this down, put pen to paper, and read this story out loud to a group of strangers in a dark theater. And so he did that. This is a story that came to me from my friend Rowan Nickel, who is this wonderful Australian actor that I met um, doing this miniseries for HBO called The Pacific. This is seven, six or seven years ago. And he told me this story and it just blew my mind. So we sat down and he sort of retold the story to me and we typed it all out and then we trimmed some of the fat and tightened it and then added some stuff. And so it was like this tight sort of 10 minute story. And this is the first like storytelling kind of segment on the show, I guess you could say. It's really wonderful, and Rowan's a really charming, wonderful actor, and the story is fantastic, and it still blows my mind that this actually happened. It's a real window into how Hollywood works, and let's just get to it, yeah? This is Rowan. Every so often, one gets an opportunity to make a statement, a real statement, culturally, historically, mythically. <laughs> it's important to grasp such opportunities with both hands. Mine came in June 2003. I had one line of gibberish to read for an untitled Lucasfilm project to be shot at Sydney's Fox Studios. This could mean only one thing. The previous two instalments of the long-awaited Star Wars prequels had been shot there. This had to be episode three, the completion of the first circle. Thus far, I hadn't gone in for a single role, a stormtrooper, a Wookiee, nothing. This was my chance. Like many, I was a childhood Star Wars disciple. I had the lightsaber, the blaster and the sheet set. 
The 10-year-old kid was now piloting the 26-year-old actor. <laughs> At the audition, I read the line multiple times, turning my head from an imaginary control panel to deliver some urgent news about something urgent with various inflections of urgency. <laughs> Captain, I'm getting a signal from Moss Esper. There are brigands in quadrant three. <laughs> I read the line six times and asked for a seventh. That was the one. <laughs> I thought. Still, it was like all auditions, a lottery ticket. My fate was in the hands of the gods. At a stroke, someone high up who I'd never met could hand me the keys to an exotic land I'd only dreamed of or toss me back on the pile, unloved. I lived in torment. Did they want me? Could they want me? <laughs> Weeks later, the call came. They wanted me. <laughs> Holy fuck. <laughs> I would be playing Captain Ramus Antilles, commander of the Tantive Four, the vessel that would attempt to transport R2-D2, C-3PO, and their stolen Death Star plans from Darth Vader's clutches at the start of episode four. My head was spinning. The day of shooting was upon me. I arrived at Fox Studios and was shown quickly into makeup. My first task was to shave immediately and report back to them. Easy. I was given a choice, a wet shave with a blade or a dry shave with an electric razor. A wet shave, of course. Close, classic, primal. That's how you groom in a war when every day could be your last. That's what Ramos Santillis would do. I found a basin in the next room, lathered up and moved the razor over my noble face. The cheeks first in graceful downward lines, my neck, long, deliberate strokes. I wonder how tall George Lucas is. My upper lip, oh, I'm sure we'll bond. I'll remind him of a young Anthony Quinn. My lower lip, there'll be a spin-off of course. Captain Antilles and whoever. Down to my chin, well, I'll certainly need a publicist. Fuck. I had managed to carve off a quarter-sized piece of my face. It was gone. Forever. I searched frantically for a tissue, towel, dowel, anything. This was bad. In a fog, I scraped away the rest of my whiskers, dabbed my chin with my shirt and looked down. Red. Red for decades. I dabbed it away and more came. It had been 15 minutes now, and soon makeup would ask for me. What could I say? The dream was over. <laughs> it was hopeless. But wait. I did have one option. I would bluff my way out of this. I would convince them that it wasn't an issue, a mere scrape. I would reach deep within, look them in the eye, and with a flourish of my commander's hand, tell them the truth. I seem to have nicked myself shaving. Like a Jedi mind trick. I could do that. I had to. The die was cast. I turned and strode out the door, up the hallway to makeup, refining my line. I seem to have scratched myself. No, nicked. Nicked. Nicked is best. I seem to have nicked myself shaving. Don't let them smell fear. You're a captain. I burst through the door, proud, shirt to chin, dripping. <laughs> to your face. <laughs> oh, this. I seem to have nicked myself, Shady. 
silence. Everyone looked at me as though I'd dropped my pants. An arm gruffly waved me into a chair. No one came near me. They were talking among themselves, no doubt asking who was this buffoon from the provinces. They took my hand from my face to reveal the wound that was still happily flowing. A cotton swab was jabbed onto my chin. Jesus, what was that? It felt like a knife. Peroxide, I was told. Okay, whatever you say, I'm in your hands. They carefully made up the rest of my face, leaving a two-inch space around my bloody mistake. Okay, you're done. Done? There was an open wound on my chin. I looked frantically from face to face, hoping to find a friend, but the bastards were going to let me fry. I was shown to my costume. It couldn't save me. I would be fired, destroyed in front of a few hundred people for a simple, tiny lapse. The golf cart came to ferry me to my execution. I I concealed my chin with my right hand. I thought, maybe I can do my scenes like this. <laughs> it could work. It could be explained. It was a choice. I arrived on set, the inside of a spaceship, all blinking lights and humming. No one else was dressed like me, except Jimmy Smiths. Jimmy Smiths! My scenes were with Jimmy Smiths. He was like me, tall, dark. <laughs> he would understand. Jim reached forward to shake my hand and said, Hey man, how's it good? <laughs> Whoa. Smith was unsettled. <laughs> and quickly found someone else to talk to. Friendless, helpless, it was time to meet George Lucas. There he was. The benevolent creator of a parallel universe. As I walked towards him, hand to chin, he looked me up and down, nodding. I was, it seemed, just as advertised, a skilled, loyal rebel commander. He extended his right hand. I faced an impossible choice. Reciprocate and reveal the dark secret that threatened to destroy us both or spurn the omnipotent father while pretending this ridiculous affectation was just my thing. <laughs> was I kidding? I took my hand from my chin to shake his and confessed my sin. George, I, uh, I don't know how to tell you this. I, I uh, seem to have nicked myself. Shaving. <laughs> he looked at my wound, paused thoughtfully and said, Oh, that's okay. You got that in the Battle of Utapal. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that! The times we had! Yes, George, yes! It was the Clone War! There were battles everywhere! The makeup department descended upon me and, get this, applied another two cuts to my face to corroborate the ruse. So there we were. Lights, set, droids, capes, wounds. Action. The scenes were a breeze. And then it was over. I was corralled away into another hangar with a drape hanging from one end and some marks on the floor. A photographer, lights, wranglers. What was this all about? I was told to pose, turning 15 degrees on an axis between snaps. Pop, pop, pop. Wait. Was I going to be a toy? I dared to dream. Sometimes, Dreams come true. This is me. 
Captain Ramus Antilles. Now, the real cut is there. <laughs> and those are the fakes. <laughs> and this, this is the action Action figure of Captain Ramus Santillis, and there are the cuts. This is what happens when you nick yourself shaving. My sisters all have one, my mother has one, my girlfriend got two. The second, after I came home one day to find the first, out of its box, propped up on the mantle with its limbs at right angles. Not a collector, obviously. And I have one. In a dog-eared box, in a plastic bag tucked away into a closet. Never to be sold or molested. A memento from a time long ago when a lad from a small town in Western Australia stepped into a galaxy far, far away. But you know what? Those cunts cut my fucking dialogue. <laughs> my name is Rowan Nickel, and I am an action figure. He cut himself shaving. That's it. That's it. The guy, he cut himself shaving, and now his action figure has a red dot on his chin. Can you believe, that's an actual thing. That's a real thing that happened. You can go to wolfpop.com and go to the Reading Aloud page and see for, your, for yourself pictures of Rowan as Captain Antilles, and then you can see a picture of the actual action figure with the <laughs> red dot on his chin and the other scars that he had makeup put on his face. George Lucas, he's a genius. Uh, Rowan was so great and I'm really glad that he told that story at the UCB this was a couple months back and he's a wonderful friend and I'm, I'm so glad that he, he came in and did that we were actually supposed to uh, play tennis today but it's uh, raining cool story Nate hey thanks um, <laughs> let's take a quick break and we'll come back with more Reading Loud and I'll tell more cool stories Adaptive Books is now presenting the recently published new YA novel, The Silence of Six, from Norton Award-winning author E.C. Myers. Goodreads selected The Silence of Six as one of the five best YA novels this month and is an excellent choice for adult readers who would like a good page-turner. The Silence of Six is one of the first novels from Adaptive Books, the new publishing imprint of Adaptive Studios, which reimagines abandoned stories from studios, production companies, agencies, and estates for retelling across a wide range of media platforms, including books, comics online, as well as traditional film and television. The Silence of Six is available wherever books are sold, including Amazon, iBooks, BN.com, IndieBound, or your local bookseller. And go to www.adaptivestudios.com backslash podcast and sign up for the chance to win a free hardcover copy. Do that now. My guest today is Harvey Jason. He's driven here all the way from the Sunset Strip in West Hollywood where he owns, with his son, I believe, Louis, um, Mystery Pier Books. It is a first edition bookstore, rare bookstore, right behind Booksuit, right by the Viper Room on the Sunset Strip. You have to walk down this great little alleyway and you find yourself in this little house I guess and uh, you walk through there and it's like a museum except you can except you can buy the pieces in the museum and the staff are unbelievably charming uh, I stumbled in there a few weeks ago 
And I dream about it, to be honest with you. I think about this place on a regular basis because I'm fascinated with first editions, with rare books, and the whole culture that's wrapped up in it. And Harvey was kind enough to come down here and talk to me about it. Uh, welcome to Reading Aloud. Thanks for coming, Harvey. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. For, for someone who knows nothing, what, what's the first thing you need to know if you're interested in rare books or, or first editions? Well, I would assume that, you know, there are many reasons why people collect. Um, it's the same as collecting paintings, art, anything like that. But, it, you know, they always say the, the rule of thumb is collect what you like. Yeah. The only books, for example, that have any value at all are the very first printings, which are called first editions, first date of the first editions. It's like the difference between... An oil painting and a serigraph, uh, uh, you know, a, a yeah. productions. So th that's it. I would advise, and, and quite often people do come to us and say, listen, I'd like to collect. And we, we always say, my son Louis started the business, and Louis and I always say to them, well, wh why do you want to collect? Do you mm. want to collect for financial purposes, for gain, which is solid, which is they're very good investments, um, or because you want to collect books that you love from your childhood, or what is the reason that you want to collect? And when they say, well, for both, we had that experience when the shop opened uh, almost 17 years ago. Uh, there was a fellow who got hold of us on the Internet from Pennsylvania, a uh, very wealthy guy, as it turned out. And he said uh, he was collecting. And I said to him, why do you want to collect? And he said, well, you know what? There are books that I, I loved in my childhood. I'd like to get true first editions of them and also for investment purposes. So I said to him, well, in that case, for investment purposes, you need to get, for example, signed Hemingway, Faulkner, Steinbeck, you know, classic American writers. Mm. Or you can go back further. You can go, you know, to, to, to British writers or whatever. But that's why books escalate in value much more rapidly than art. Why is that? I don't know why that is, but, huh. it, but it happens. For example, several years ago, you could have bought maybe about six or seven years ago, you could have bought a really nice first edition of Cashier in the Rye mm. for about 3000 3500 Today, it's double that. That's not many years later. Is that, I'm assuming that has to do with, with, um, with Salinger's death. Does that have anything to do with it? Or? Actually, strangely enough, no. Um, that was a huge collectible item well before he died. Yeah. Often, when a writer dies, the books escalate in value. They go up. Uh, it, they were high in his case anyway. Sure. Um, but then there was a documentary made, uh, Salinger. And, I can't wait uh, to talk uh, to you about that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I want to ask uh, about the shop. What what what? How did you open the shop, and how, why did you get started in, oh, in rare it's, books? It's, it's God's grace. It's God's grace. I was in another business, and my son Louis was selling books. Uh, he was a bookseller selling uh, at book fairs and online and so forth. And it had always been really a pipe dream of mine to, to one day own a really first-class, exclusively first-edition bookshop. And uh, I was doing something else, and as, as luck would have it, uh, and I'm convinced it's God's grace, I really am, uh, we got together in 1998 and found this location which looked awful. It was um, off the strip. Yeah. You had to go in and we met the realtor and we thought that it was an available space on the strip and it wasn't. And he took us down this passageway to this bungalow which was totally empty. And Louie and I looked at each other and thought, well, who's going to come back here? Well, as it turned out, it was just fortuitous because we have um, a very large celebrity clientele and they can park in the back and there's privacy afforded them without the paparazzi. It's turned out to be a real benefit. And it's, um, 
It's, it's just great. I mean, it develops. We're open seven days a week. You can't keep either of us away from the place. <laughs> and, and, and just to be surrounded by that literature, you know, by the sign Dickens and Hemingway and uh, all the great stuff, it's, it's wonderful. Are there any pieces in the shop now that would sort of break your heart if someone came in today and, and took them away? Well, there are a couple of pieces which, regretfully, we have had seller's remorse about. You know, mm. the, Louis and I have learned our lesson in terms of not bringing our own books into the shop. Yeah. We don't bring anything in that we don't want to sell. Yeah. There was a contemporary piece that we did buy, and, uh, and we brought it in. And it was uh, with, uh, probably the best John Lennon piece Oh, ever. wow. It was um, a drawing by John Lennon, a caricature of, of John and Yoko, and then another one, a smaller one on the bottom, and he had written on the piece of paper, why not just say, let's give peace a chance? John Holy it was shit. It was a terrific piece. Oh, I, my God. And, and it was expensive, and we made the mistake of selling it. Yeah. And we shouldn't have sold it. How and, much did uh, it sell for? Well, we sold it to a special client of ours, so we discounted it. It, right. end, it ended up, we, I think we gave it something like 18000 how How is the market set for rare books, and who decides where these numbers are? How, how is that figured out? That's a great question. It's a great question. Um, there are there are many different ways um, to decide on on pricing an item and the actual worth of the item in the marketplace. Yeah. Um, there are auction records which we go to. We go to auction. We go to previous sales, um, and those are pretty good guidelines. Plus, we belong mm. to all the international associations of antiquarian booksellers, so we're able to go back over their records and see what things sold for, and and on what basis um, the price was determined. But it's generally. Um, it's like anything else. Experience. It's scarcity. It's, it's scarcity yeah. and value. I mean, if there's a book that came out with a, a first printing of 100 copies, right. it's going to be pretty rare. Now, we have the first separate printings of Shakespeare's plays, the first time that they were ever printed separately after the folios. I'm not sure whether you saw them. They were published no. 1734, and it's the first time they were published separately. And we have about seven or eight of them. Uh, the paper is like vellum. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. what is the paper it's like? It's just gorgeous. It, they're gorgeous, gorgeous pieces. We have an actor's copy from As You Like It. It's a large actor's copy Holy from 1709. Shit. And the idea that an actor or an actress learned their lines from this oh, thing is it. just mind-boggling I mean, to us. I'll tell you what, you talk about scarcity, we, and, and to revert back to a previous question of yours about a regretting a sale. Yes, yes. We had... Um, uh, Queen Victoria published two books on her husband's essays and um, uh, just remarks and poems and so forth. Hmm. And she was, as, as most of us know, she was very reluctant to talk about the death of her husband, of Albert. She was so, you know, consumed by grief that she wouldn't do anything. Hmm. Well, we have two inscribed books by Queen Victoria. One we still have. The one that we sold had a full-page inscription by Queen Victoria to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And it was June, I believe, 1862. And in it, she wrote on the front paste down all about the grief she felt at the loss of Albert. Holy and shit. And she finished it by saying, by writing in the book, 52 weeks since the sun set, forever for the Queen. Then we have another one signed by her, inscribed by her, to her cousin, who was her closest friend, um, which is kind of nice, too. But that's still that's in the shop. That's still there. Holy cow. Yeah. it's. Um, 
I tell you, you learn life lessons in, in this kind of a shop, in this kind of a business. And I'm not sure whether I mentioned it to you, but the, the most glaring example of that, and it was a terrific thing, it really taught me a lesson. My mother used to say, don't ever judge people, just don't judge people, you know, they'll tell you who they are and so forth. Mm -hmm. Well, many, many, many years, about, we had opened the shop maybe a year, and there was, it was the middle of summer, and there was a tinkling of the bell at the front door, and I walked through the two rooms to the front, and I, I saw what was obviously a homeless woman standing there, a woman about 80 years old. She's standing there, her hair's all frizzled and all messed, wearing big glasses. She's wearing a house coat with dirt, earth coming all the way down, and she's holding two shopping bags filled with empty soda cans. This is a homeless woman. So I open the door, and she looks at me, and she says, do you have any first editions Charles Dickens here? Wow. So I, thought, wow. I said, well, as a matter of fact, I said, we do. And then she said, I could marry him. So I thought, well, she's a bloody lunatic to boot. But there was a sweetness emanating from this woman. Right. So I said, would you like to come in? I'll show you that. She said, oh, yeah. She's grabbing the soda can things, the two shopping bags. I take her to the back to one of the cabinets where I had, at that point, three first edition Charles Dickens. So I said, would you like to hold one of these? Wow. She said, oh, you thought I gave her a million dollars. So I got the keys, I opened it up, and I gave her Nicholas Nickleby. She put down the, the shopping bags, and she got the book, and she's looking at it. And it, you thought I gave her gold. And I went into the front room to give her a few dollars from the cash register, and her voice turned me around, and she said, well, I'll take these. So I turn around. She's holding out the Black American Express, the Centurion card. Well, I, I was—I mean, as you can imagine, I was—I was dumbfounded. I was actually dumbfounded. So I said to her, "Well, uh, first of all, I said you don't know how much they are." So she puts her hand up, cups her hand around her mouth, and she says, "No, you better tell me, but I'm going to buy them anyway." Well, it turns out this is the, the most amazing thing. This woman, may she rest in peace, she died three years ago. She became an incredible client of ours and, and one of my closest personal friends. Here's what happened. She, she owned a, a large estate in Truesdale, the Truesdale section of Beverly Hills. It was the middle of summer. Her hobby was gardening. She was out in the garden, Holy hence shit. all the dirt on her hand. The housekeeper came down and said to her, you, you have a hair appointment at four o'clock. So Mrs. Vegas, she said, well, oh, I forgot. She said, you know what, I'll go like this. So she said to the housekeeper, you don't look well. And the housekeeper said, I think I'm getting the flu. So Shirley said to her, well, I'll tell you what, stay home, go to your room and just relax. The housekeeper said, yes, but I told my daughter, you know, she, she takes the cans to the redemption center. I thought I told her I'd take the cans. So <laughs> Shirley said, well, I'll tell you what, on my way to or from the hairdresser, I'll drop the cans at the Redemption Center. She's driving down Sunset Boulevard in a brand new Rolls-Royce Corniche convertible with the top down. She sees the sign, the neon sign, Mystery Pier Books, and there's a parking space right in front. So she pulls in and for whatever reason, doesn't put the top of the car up and doesn't want to leave the cans and comes marching in and I think she's homeless. Oh. What a lesson that was for Holy me. Holy cow, my God. You know, stuff like that happens. Yeah. Really happens. I feel like this is a gauche question, but I have to ask it because you have such a a crazy celebrity clientele, um, and so many celebrities are going in and out of that place all the time. And and I'm assuming a lot of people use your shop to buy gifts yes. for people, whether it's big studio heads or actors or musicians or whoever. 
maybe they send their assistants. I don't know, but I'm assuming a lot of them come in themselves. And I know that Johnny Depp is one of the sort of your most famous client, perhaps. He wore a T-shirt. Will you tell me that story, the T-shirt yeah. of your shop that sort of changed? Yeah. What happened with that T-shirt? Well, he wore he wore the T-shirt on a, on a cover of Rolling of um, was it Rolling Stone online? That's right. Yeah. And uh, and then a lot of people came in and wanted to buy T-shirts, so we <laughs> kept ordering more and more and more T-shirts. How many T-shirts had you printed up before he was on oh, in, in Rolling Stone? I, I think just a few dozen. Yeah, a right. Few dozen. Right. Uh, since then, I mean, we've we've sold countless T-shirts. Yeah, I have is, one. It's, it's, yeah, thank you. It's great for us. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's great for us. Yeah, just wear it. Wear it all over yeah, London. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Did he? Uh, when did he first start f- coming into the the shop? Oh, about uh, seven or eight, nine years ago. I yeah, guess. and he's been collecting for a long time. Yes, he's got a wonderful it, library. What is his? Uh, does are his interests? And maybe you can't answer these questions because he's a client of yours. But I mean, is is, our, is his interest sort of all over the place, or is he, does he have a very specific sort of demographic that he's trying to find? No, I don't think so. I just think that he loves literature. He loves books. He's very generous about giving gifts. Yeah. And he's just an, an overall really a terrific, a terrific guy and, and intellectual and, and stimulating to talk to and very, very knowledgeable about yeah. literature. You told me an amazing story about the wedding march, about trying to find... Oh, this was this was really great. We really lucked out here. We were doing. Um, uh, we had some calls to sell some gifts for a wedding, for a celebrity wedding, and uh, which we did. And then after we did that, I woke up in bed at one point, and I suddenly thought, "Wait a minute! The most incredible wedding gift would be if we could ever find it, or for that matter, just to have." The very first printing of Mendelssohn's Wedding March, Ugh. arguably one of, if not the most most well-known piece of music in right. the world, next right. to Happy Birthday, perhaps. <laughs> well, it turns out that we got it. We got it. We managed to track it down. Louis found it. We got it. And we had it bound. It, As it happens, Mendelssohn, in 1948, wrote the Wedding March not as a singular piece, but he wrote it to incorporate in his full symphonic orchestration of Midsummer Night's Dream because there are three weddings at the end. And, and right. we had it. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece. And um, I'm very anxious to sell it. <laughs> it's, it's it's, so it's in the shop it's now. It's in the shop, yeah. And we, we had a very extravagant box, a full Oasis Morocco leather box made for it. It's gorgeous. It's wow. really gorgeous, yeah. Is it, does, it, does it ever happen when someone comes into the shop and asks for th- something that is just unattainable? Are you, or, or are you able to basically track down just about any author or any piece? Or is there something that is, what's the last time someone came into the shop and, and you said, oh, that's, I, I can't find that. That, that's, that must be impossible. Well, I don't know. We, we have been asked um, to track things down and we've been able to, uh, we do it. I mean, we had, somebody wanted um, uh, an Einstein relativity signed and, uh, Whoa. We, and we got it. We were able to get it. We got the first edition in English signed by Einstein with about the best letter of provenance I have ever read. There's a, a, a professor called Karl Allendorfer who was on the faculty with Einstein at Princeton University. Allendorfer had a friend who was the dean of Haverford College, and that dean bought a first edition of the Relativity book, gave it to his friend Karl, and said, can you have the professor sign this for me? Well, it turned out um, it took a long time, but he got it signed, and there was a two-page handwritten letter 
which we got with the book, which described the circumstance. And he said, this Carl Allendorfer said uh, to his friend, I'm, I'm very sorry it took so long to get your book signed, but I was waiting for a very propitious moment where I wouldn't disturb Yeah, him. sure. And that moment, he said, came this morning in a, a, a very interesting manner. He said, I saw the professor walking down the hall of the fine building, which is the math building, and he went into the kitchen. Immediately, I went to my locker, I got your copy of the book, and I went into the kitchen. In the kitchen, I found the professor holding a piece of white paper over the heating element of the electric stove. It turned out his pipe had gone out and he had no matches and he was using this to light the pipe. I waited till he lit his pipe, he took a few puffs and then I gave him the book to sign which he was happy to do. But it gives, it gives oh, you an insight yeah. as to Einstein's personality. Absolutely. It was a terrific letter and a great, a great thing to have had. There must be so many stories similar to that about how inscriptions come mm. and how signed books come. In. I had a, a friend of mine who works in rare books, I'm not sure if I told you about this, but he... He had um, a, I guess it was sort of the, 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 what the wire used to be, the news wire. And it, was, it would print out from the AP, I'm assuming. It would print out and, and news readers would tear it off and read the news from this wire. And he had the entire transcript of the moon landing from, oh. I think, just from, from when, um, you know, the eagle had landed to... Um, uh, Armstrong walking down the stairs, and it's about 12 or 13 feet long. And the last bit of it is just one sentence. It says, man walks on moon, and it's signed by Neil Armstrong. Oh. When I was in his shop, he took it out, and he showed it to me. And how do you place, how do you place a value on that? How can you determine how much that is worth to someone? I, I, that just absolutely fascinates me. I, it was, for me, it was tangible history. It was the moon. It was a piece of the moon landing I could see, I could smell, and I could touch. As opposed to sitting in a classroom and learning about the the moon landing, this is real, and I feel like there's so many books, whether it's books or any sort of collectible item, that you can show someone and like this is proof that this happened, that the past is real. Indeed. And this is proof. A, a, a friend of mine also, the same friend, he, he was really, he had a lot of success um, selling Revolutionary War artifacts. And there are these pamphlets, I think Thomas Paine wrote one of these pamphlets when, I think it was 1775, it was the winter of 75 into 76, and a lot of the Minutemen, the winter was really hard and they'd sort of, left Washington, returned to their farms, and Washington thought, shit, we're running low on guys, and I need to rally the troops, literally. He asked Thomas Paine to write this pamphlet. This is when there were pamphlets as opposed, and as opposed to books. He wrote this pamphlet saying, hey, farmers, get off your ass and fight this war. And because of this pamphlet, basically, that's why we won the war. And he had a copy of this pamphlet. I mean, this, this piece of paper, this country would not exist if it weren't for this piece of paper. Incredible. And that just absolutely, that gets me more excited than, uh, I don't know, that stuff. And, and yet I'll have this conversation with someone else and they'll just say, I don't get it. And I'll think, ah, we are just, we're two very different people. No, I agree with you completely. We have, we have a piece in the shop that we've just had a beautiful plexiglass frame made for. And it's a, a telegram that was sent uh, from the man who, 
It was during the Spanish Civil War. It was August the 7th of 1937 is the telegram. It was sent to General Franco mm -hmm. uh, in Salamanca, Spain. Mm -hmm. And in Spanish, it said that um, you will soon be in receipt of 10,000 US dollars um, for us to reconquer Spanish soil. Well, it's signed by this particular man. There is a very famous photograph of Hemingway and a fisherman and a 900-pound marlin. Uh -huh. You may know that sure. photograph. The, the fisherman in that photograph is the son of the man who sent the telegram. Um, the, at that time, you could send duplicate telegrams. Uh -huh. It didn't say duplicate. It was the same thing. The father kept the telegram. The, uh, one went, of course, to Franco. The, uh, the father kept that telegram, gave it to the son. Years later, the son became very friendly with Hemingway, gave the telegram to Hemingway, and now the one that we have, Hemingway, has signed the thing saying, Salamanca, Spain, 1937, Ernest Hemingway. Holy cow. Yeah, there's a bit of history there. Yeah, absolutely. I think I was talking to your son about this letter that I saw on eBay that I, I, I every so often I just take a peek at. It's a letter that Fitzgerald wrote to... So, <clears throat> excuse me, some woman he was pursuing at a hotel bar. And it was a letter of apology the following morning saying, <laughs> I mean, t basically I was, I was really drunk. I'm sorry I came on to you so strong, put my hands on you and tried to get you to come back to my room. It's not usually how I behave. Um, but he did it, of course, in a beautifully elegant, you know, Fitzgerald way. But basically apologizing to this woman for Jeez. trying to screw her. And yeah. I thought, if, <laughs> that is, as, as a lover of Fitzgerald, that, that's, that's a letter that's I terrific. want in my home. That's um, terrific. Well, you know, those kind of insights into writers. Like this is when, when Faulkner was here, was in Hollywood, and uh, the studio got him, the head of the studio got him an apartment uh, on Bronson, not far from Paramount. Yeah. And he's writing there. And at one point he uh, went and he phoned uh, the head of the studio and said, listen, can I uh, write uh, from home? And he said, absolutely right. From home. He got on a bus and went back to Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> and is that, that, does that exist? That piece, that, yeah, yeah. That is, ab yeah. that's hilarious. Yeah. There's a, you know, a lot of stuff like that. I, I love all the relevance of these, uh, these written, written things. It's great. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask, uh, sp speaking of authors and sort of an insight into them, I wanted to talk to you about Salinger because, you obviously know quite a bit about him and his work and his life, and you were featured prominently in the Salinger documentary that came out last year. And I wanted to ask you about him and his collectability and why people are so – why are people so enthralled by J.D. Salinger? Why is he – seems like he's reached a level of, of fame that a lot of – American authors haven't reached, and I wondered why, why, why that is. Well, you know, he, you're quite right. I mean, he's achieved a really an iconic status, mm -hmm. status in, in, in the literary annals and in and sociologically pop culture, in yeah. pop culture. Uh, that book, um, Catcher in the Rye, which is his really his one claim to fame, truly, um, could, would not, in my own humble opinion, maybe not so humble, uh, would not have succeeded today. It was published at exactly the right time. In mm. the 1950s, you had a disillusioned kid, Holden Caulfield, fed up, everybody else was a phony, and it registered in the social consciousness. It really registered, and it took off, and it went down to the next generation, next generation. Um, I recently reread it, and I wasn't, I wasn't enthralled mm. particularly with it. Um, but he, because of his, his elusive nature anyway, 
Uh, he was a very, very peculiar fellow, very, very peculiar, Had a, uh, was a horrible father. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, quite frankly, uh, was probably as close to a, a, a pedophile as, as you could get. I mean, yeah. not, not little girls, but girls, you know, 13, 14, 14 15, 16. Yeah. Um, and and he, he, his whole disposition, his whole being was so odd and so peculiar. I mean, the cures that he developed for himself, like drinking his own urine, it is crazy. I mean, yeah. absolutely nuts. Um, his daughter, uh, Maggie, uh, Peggy, Margaret, didn't, didn't speak to him for many, many years. He's got a good relationship with his son, Matt. Had a good relationship with his son, Matthew. But, I mean, here's a guy, a Jewish guy from Park Avenue, goes to Germany and uh, marries a Nazi, a card-carrying member of the Nazi party. Jesus. And brings her back, a very, very odd and peculiar guy, you know. Built a bunker in the back of his uh, place to go and write and stayed in right. there forever, wouldn't publish. Um, it was was very, very quick to dismiss uh, long-term friends if he sensed any kind of disloyalty. Yeah. Do you chalk this all up to, to post-traumatic stress, or is there something bigger at play? Was there mental illness? No, I think that he, he was nuts before he went into the army. Okay. I mean, I think he was very disturbed. Before. He wanted to be an actor. And, um, and in fact, in his, in his yearbook, uh, in his yearbook, he wrote uh, all the characters of, that he'd played in various plays and so forth. Well, That's so his, strange. He wanted to be an actor, and yet an he actor. hid. Yeah. Like he didn't, he, maybe when he was younger, he wanted to be on stage and be exposed and be in front of people and get that positive reinforcement. But as an adult, he, he shunned it all. Yes. That's interesting, isn't it? It's well, I wonder what changed in him. I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, he uh, he was uh, not a good student. Uh, he was uh, had a lot of disciplinary problems, and, uh, and then he went into the service. And uh, he he was a very very odd character across the board, just across the board. And his other stuff. I mean, really and truly, his output um, that he allowed to be published was very very small. Yeah, like five items. And and uh, Franny and Zoe, a lot of people really respond to. Yeah, I responded to that. Yeah, uh, I, I like that. Yeah. I like it better than uh, Catherine and Ryan. Yeah, we had what I believe to be the most relevant um, sign challenger. We had a, a first edition of the paperback of um, Race High. Beams. Yeah, and it was inscribed by Salinger to a woman called Becky Tugel, and uh, it, the inscription read, um, "To Becky, a few naughty pictures of you would make this better than my worst book." Holy Signed shit. Jerry. Whoa! And he had had an affair with this woman for over thirty years. What year was this? This well, this would have been. It wasn't dated, so this would have been. <sighs> she, she, Becky Tugel. There was actually a big piece on this whole business with with his affair, Betty Tugel, in Playboy magazine many years ago. Uh huh. Um, but it's just one of the many things. But this affair uh, ranged over thirty years, three decades. Wow! Holy but cow! But that was a nice piece. It was a really good piece. Again, that seller's remorse. Yeah. Probably shouldn't have sold that one. For Christmas this year, I, what I want is a, is a first edition original dust jacket, uh, Catcher in the Rye, with the photo on the back. They all have the photo. Oh, they do? They all do, but the true first edition um, on the back, it's a photo by Lottie Jacobs, and it has to have her name on it. And, uh. and the true first edition and first state of the first edition, um, his hair, the top of his head has to come exactly to the top. There are some 
editions that purport to be first editions where there's a rather large quarter of an inch space. Wow. It's not so. It has to be the true first edition, wow. which we have in the shop. I mean, we have a we have two of them in the shop, true first editions. Do you want do you want to give me one of those f- for Absolutely. Christmas Absolutely, I'll year? be happy to give it to you. And Harvey, in return, I knew in return for the Christmas present back to me, uh-huh. would be a rather large check. Oh. And we can trade okay. gifts well, under the tree. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't even have to be under the tree. Do it uh, I the think shop. I know where you're going here. <clears throat> All right, fair enough. I'll tell you that what more important than that would be a first edition in beautiful dust jacket of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh. We okay. have that, by the way. We have yeah. a copy that belonged to the girl, who, Mary Badham, who played Scout in the movie. Oh, my God. And it's a lousy copy, but it's a mag- – and it's it's uh, we've got it for $20,000. It's a lousy copy – but the dust jacket is gorgeous, and that's where the value of books are, the right. dust jacket. I, I'm trying to figure out, I've yet to, to understand why all the, this fascinates me. For me, it started with sports. I'm a big sports fan, and sports memorabilia is really compelling to me, especially game-used stuff. Like a set of game-used cleats or something, that is so that, or a, a game-used jersey, that, that stuff is really compelling to me um, because I'm watching the game on television it's sort of abstract but then when you see a, a mitt or a jersey or a ball that was used it becomes real yeah, to you yeah. and I wonder why maybe you can help me as someone who works in this industry and knows it better than just about anyone why do first editions mesmerize people why am I so compelled by them I think that you you share the kind of uh, curiosity, intellectual curiosity and um, excitement that most people feel who who love literature, who love the arts. It's the idea of first edition. This is the very first time that this book was published. Nobody knew at the time of publication that it could achieve monumental historical literary importance. And suddenly it did. I mean, you get... In Our Time, written by Ernest Hemingway in 1926, it came out in our time, just a regular book. And it's become monumental in terms right. of collectability. Right. All the Hemingway. This is why I, I'm not a huge fan of Hemingway. I, I have other authors that I prefer. But I'm perfectly able to understand um, his significance. Sure. Uh, and, and, I, and his signature, his, his signature, his handwriting is gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. And we've done a lot of letters of his and so forth from Cuba and Key West and, I, and in books. And I, I love his handwriting. But there are other authors. Uh, my favorite, really, if I had to pick a favorite author, I've got a couple. But one of them certainly is George Orwell. Mm. Uh, Eric Blair was his real name. And it's incredibly difficult to find any signed Orwell. It's it's just incredibly difficult. Hmm. He worked uh, as a reporter for a long time, and and so the, the, on the couple of occasions where we found signed Orwell, it's um, Eric Blair, E.B. Wow. Uh, e. Blair, but not, hmm. not Orwell, you know, and it, it's hmm. curious. And I also love D.H. Lawrence, and there's yeah. a lot of Lawrence. Uh, another regretful thing, I had a four-page handwritten letter um, that I owned, not the shop, that I bought for myself, that I made the mistake of bringing into the shop. And it was uh, it was written by um, D.H. Lawrence to Fried, his wife's, Frieda's sister, Elsa. And it was all about rewriting Lady Chatterley's Lover. And it said, the, the, the mother-in-law must never see this. And then he said, he finished it by saying, I shall publish this privately in Florence. So we had that and we had the book 
that he published <sighs> privately in Florence. Um, but I, lo- I loved it. I loved D.H. Lawrence, and I, I, yeah. I, I just I'm fascinated by him. I love his writing, yeah. and, I, and I love his life. Who do you think, working now, will be collectible in the future? That's a, it's a marvelous question because there's such an array of talented writers now. One of my favorite writers really get is totally underestimated. It's Stephen King. Stephen King absolutely will, will never win a Pulitzer, no. and yet for me, there's nobody that has the finger on the social pulse better mm. than Stephen King. Mm. I think he's an extraordinary writer, yeah, an absolutely marvelous writer. There's an English writer who I, I also adore called um, Michelle Farber, who wrote a book, a Dickensian novel called The Crimson Petal and the White which the BBC did a four-hour dramatization of it. Mm. And he's now written a new book, which is, is just terrific, um, called The Book of Strange New Things. And okay. um, it's it, 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 so many. There's such an array of writers today, really talented, wonderful writers. Yeah. For my listeners who, who live in L.A. or whoever visit L.A. and you're interested in books, Mystery Pier is a, is a must Stop. What, what, is the, what is the actual tangible address? It's at 8826 Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood. Um, apparently a pilot came in last week and said uh, he came in because Mystery Pier was in the in-flight magazine at Delta Airlines. <laughs> I'm no, not surprised. I, no idea. We had no I'm idea I'm not surprised. It. But it's 8826 Sunset Boulevard, and it's um, virtually next door to a very wonderful regular bookshop called Book Soup, and you, with us, you go down the passageway. You see it's a big neon sign there, 8826 Sunset Boulevard on Sunset Strip. My guest today has been Harvey Jason. I could talk to him for days. Uh, he's a fascinating guy, and the things that come in and out of his hands just absolutely blow my mind. Thank you so much for coming Thank in. Thank you for the honor. It's a real privilege. Uh, thank thank you, you very much. This week's episode of Reading Aloud is brought to you by my newest supporter, Loot Crate. This is such a cool service. They ship you, it's a box service for epic geek and gamer and nerd pop culture gear. Every month for less than 20 bucks, you get six to eight items, random items that include licensed gear and apparel, collectibles, and really cool, unique, like one-of-a-kind items that get shipped right to your door. And to start 2015 off right, they're doing this celebration of geek and gaming icons of the past. So it's like Star Wars and Voltron stuff, totally exclusive, sent to your door. So you have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe. And if you miss it, that deadline you're done. So don't miss that deadline. So go to lootcrate.com slash Nate and enter code Nate to save 10% off any new subscription. Nerds unite. We've reached act three of Reading Aloud. I'm your host, Nate Cordry. And this final piece is uh, written by Lisa Gabriel, who first had it published on nerve.com and then McSweeney's picked it up and put it in their best non-required reading series. This is from 2003. Every year they put out a collection of the best stories that they found during the year. And this was in the 2003 collection, and I just love it. And my first show that I ever did in Burbank, Aaron Hayes, who's an amazing actor, came in and read it. And uh, no disrespect to any of the other performers that night, but Aaron's performance was just special. Everyone sort of leaned forward in their chair when 
she started performing. It's this really great piece, and she just really brought it to life. And unfortunately, I didn't record it that night because I didn't think this was this would turn into a, a podcast. But here we are. So I had her come into the studio and reread it, and it's just as great. And this is uh, this is Erin reading a piece by Lisa Gabriel called "Guide to Becoming a Groupie." And Lisa Gabriel is a really great writer. You can find her stuff on on uh, on her website, lisagabriel.com. And it's just a great combination of really good content and a really wonderful reader. So we're going to finish off today's show with the amazing Erin Hayes reading Lisa Gabriel's piece. Here it is. Be a girl. Be born sad. Be from a big family or be an only child. Either way, make sure your parents are distracted and overwhelmed with life. They should hate your moodiness and scoff at any discussion of fresh and freaky ways to wear your hair. Notice that as your parents' arguments, debt, and beer bottles pile up on the kitchen table at night, the volume on your radio dial rises. Through process of elimination, rock and roll loud is the only thing that drowns out the downstairs cacophony. You are 12. You learn to stay out of the way of what's going to happen. Don't panic when lyrics to songs by Van Halen, Aerosmith, Led Zeppelin, and Journey fill the space in your brain previously reserved for algebra problems, figure skating schedules, and your dad's new phone number. Realize that you can memorize a song after hearing it only three times. Trace a Rush album cover onto the title page of your English composition binder. Ask your mom if you can take guitar lessons. She tells you to dry the dishes and when you're done to take the garbage out. Drag the flimsy bag over the gravel, check to see if any neighbors are around, and then sing into the dark suburban sky. She's just a small town girl. She took the midnight train going anywhere. Wonder if Steve Perry wrote that song after he peered behind your homemade curtains into the three-bedroom, two-bath carpet fireplace, wall-to-wall shag split level, and watched you, alone at the kitchen table, illuminated by the light over the stove, waiting for the avocado phone to ring. Get a job at a jean store in the mall. Go to Faces for a free makeover on your lunch break. In between sips of your Dairy Queen shake, watch as a 21-year-old's face is smeared atop your 16-year-old features. Notice how that girl in the mirror looks old and young, wary and naive at the very same time. Ask yourself, where did she come from? Memorize the combination of shading and shine before scrubbing it off in the washroom after shift. Your mom's picking you up in front of the mall. It's important that she recognizes you. For now. Become best friends with Linda G., the assistant manager of the jeans store, who is four years older and has tits and money in spades plus a driver's license, plus knowledge of radio station concerts and the names of doormen at the Alexander Tavern and the Riviera by the Expressway. You know, Diamond's Lounge is okay, she says, but you go there last because it's the easiest to get into. There, let an older man dance with you. Make casual movie conversation. Ask him what he does for a living. When he tells you he's an accountant, pretend you know what that is. He asks you the same. You say student. What's your major? You say English. He asks for your number. Give him the wrong one. Your mom's home all the time now, so it's likely she'd answer. Plus, he's her age, and that creeps you out. You're not here for the men. You're still here for the boys. But they have a hard time getting into these places without the benefits of scaffolded hair and three-inch feather earrings, which brush your collarbones and complement your heart jersey perfectly. Be certain that the first time the lead singer from Hustler makes eye contact with you, he's addressing his song to the sky-high blonde on your left. The Can-Am Tavern is dark. It's an easy mistake to make. 
Feel Linda nudge you in the ribs the second time he finds your eyes. When she says, he's looking right fucking at you. There's only the tiniest bit of jealousy in her voice. Because no one has searched you out or locked eyes with you so intently in so long, return the gaze with the kind of intensity you're sure will make the bar spontaneously combust. Feel joy and fear like you've done something beautifully bad. Then recoil your attention, smack the love off your face, and enjoy the drinks he sent to your round, tippy table. Be unaware this is the last time you act coy by accident. Not intently when Dale tells you that Hustler is just a starter band. As soon as he gets his shit together and buys a new amp, he's going to find a better band that will launch him into the stratosphere. Realize that the fact that he has a plan for tomorrow turns you on like nothing else. He puts his tongue in your ear and his hand on your thigh near your crotch. He tells you he writes his own songs. Maybe one day he'll write a song about your brown eyes, which now reflect blurry love. And suddenly you have a plan, too. You will be the girl in his songs. That job will require you simply to show up and satisfy his needs. This is easy because you've never really discovered any of your own, but showing up is something you've mastered. When Linda gives you a look that says, your fucking ride's leaving, say goodbye and promise to see him tomorrow. Be careful to keep the word curfew out of your new rock vernacular. When the new doorman questions the veracity of your fake ID, say, I'm with the band. Demand that he get Dale. Dale is expecting you. Dale makes it good with the guy, then parts the sea, guiding you to a table by the stage. The drummer's wife is there. She excuses herself to check with the babysitter, respray her crimped hair, and shove cheap coke up her French-Canadian nose. Swear that she and the drummer are brother and sister. Dale kisses you fiercely, gratefully, expertly, draping his skinny, tattooed arm around your bare shoulders like an owner. Feel marvelous to belong to something for the first time in your life. Feel proud of yourself and the things you do and the people you know. Stack your spare cans on Friday morning to accommodate your new lifestyle. Find it difficult to remember the last time you made it to afternoon gym and drama. Realize that being in classroom Monday to Thursday is like living between concrete brackets. Exist only for Thursday, Friday, and ladies' night when Dale's on stage, when you can finally fully look at him. Imagine how you would fit into his big life, which is sure to get bigger than this tavern. Between sets, when Dale sits with you, he eats up all the oxygen. Find it hard to breathe, which has something to do with the fact that his mouth is constantly smothering yours, and the broom closet in the backstage area of the riv is only big enough to do it standing up. Enjoy the furtive sex, but prefer this open-air affection when everyone in the room is reminded of who you really are. Act positive that at some time or another you probably told Dale pretty much exactly how old it is that you were, or maybe that it never really came up. You know, and whose fault is that? Try to remember the last time Dale ever asked you questions about yourself. Fucker doesn't even know your last name. Fucker never bought you a burger or phoned you at home. I mean, true, you told him not to, but Fucker only ever really expected you to show up when he was playing to sit your sweet ass down on the vinyl chairs to watch. He didn't know about your strep throat or that your mom's been crying more than usual. Fucker didn't even write that song about your eyes, which are now brimming over with great lush ebony and Alice Coopering down your Maybelline cheeks. You want to be in a song, but not this song. The last thing you ever wanted to be was the girl who bawls drunkenly in public washrooms because no one ever writes about her. Unless they're punk. And that's not your bag yet. 
Be fashionably late when soldier stripes and the look are playing the Rockfest band shell. No, almost everyone there. The drummer's wife, who is smoking and teetering on her heels in the rain, lets you into the backstage area behind the porta potties. Fail to spot Dale, but catch a glimpse of Angelo from Soldier. He sees you too. Feel his big hug as he pulls you into his skinny body and fat bulge. Hear him tell you it's good to see you, that he's heard about you and Dale. He tells you Dale's an asshole and his band's crap. And why don't you and Linda make yourselves comfortable on the picnic table and watch their show from there? Feel the click of comfort of belonging to a place with these people, how things seem normal again. See Dale with that red-headed bitch from the Riv, the one who always hovered near the tippy table acting like she was total friends with everyone? Don't let it bother you. She's older than you by a lot, and Dale's totally fucking welcome to her. Don't give a shit when Angelo ignores you after they're set because the keyboardist doesn't. Feels like musical sluts the way the two of you wound up side by side on the least crowded picnic table. Have a deep discussion about horoscopes, dogs, and divorce, which makes you feel gorgeous about yourself. Watch as Jay Jr. circles your nipple with the mouth of his sweaty black label. Ignore your mother when she starts in on you again as you're on your way out the fucking door. Run toward the honking until her yelling disappears in the hum of Jay's eye rock. At the club, smile as he whisks you past the doorman, past the crowded stage area, and into a real green room. This is where you keep the other bored girls company while boys play. Some girls you know, the rest you don't really want to. Get high. Watch Jay come backstage after a set you didn't bother to watch. Be unimpressed with a few songs he wrote, all of which seem a bit gay. You knew which words were coming even before you committed the lyrics to memory. When Jay asks you to shove over on the ratty couch, get up. Someone else's ex-girlfriend drives you home in a dark blue van. Notice a guitar leaning up against the console in the upstairs hallway. It's small and used and untuned. Ask your mother whom it belongs to. She says you if you want it. Reply that you don't know how to play guitar. Try teaching yourself something new for a change, she says. Try making up your own mind about things instead of accommodating those fucking guys who keep pulling up on our goddamn driveway but never bother to come to our front fucking door, she says. Laugh secretly at the guy on the cover of How to Play Guitar in Ten Easy Steps. It's a gay lord with a red fuzzy afro who's smiling idiotically. Hide the book in your purple satin bag, the one you made in home ec, for which you received your first A-. Learn a song, sitting cross-legged on the bathroom vanity. It's leaving on a jet plane. Picture what it must feel like to do that. Realize you can't because you've never been on an airplane. Consider writing a song about that very dilemma. And when your brother pounds on the bathroom door saying, hurry up, that he has to use the bathroom, tell him to fuck off and use the one downstairs because you've got the room right now. Tell him all eyes are on you and both of them are wide fucking open. That was Erin Hayes reading Lisa Gabriel's Guide to Becoming a Groupie. And that's the final piece of our show this week. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Reading Aloud. A reminder, again, about the book club. We're three weeks away, so go pick up Dennis Johnson's The Laughing Monsters. Uh, you can find it in any bookstore. Dennis Johnson is great. Jesus' Son is one of my favorite books. This is his newest book from 2014, and pick it up. 
read it and be a part of the show. Be included. I want you to be a part of this show as much as you can be. So read the book and then send your thoughts into readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com and we'll talk about your thoughts live on the show. So we're off next week and then we're back on the... I think the 16th of January, that Friday is our next episode. So thanks so much for listening to another episode of Reading Aloud. I'm your host, Nate Cordry. And again, the theme music is Possessed by Paul James. A lot of people are asking me about this on Twitter. Possessed by Paul James. The song is called Hurricane. You can get all of his stuff on iTunes. He's fantastic. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Happy New Year. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.